Let's do this. You guys ready? We're looking at six stories about six different people meeting Jesus. And what we said is, you know, our desire is that through kind of their experiences and their encounters, uh, you would have the opportunity to meet Jesus as well and be changed in a very similar uh, way. And tonight, we're going to look at a story of a man uh, who was probably the least important man uh, in his town, in his community, in his culture of the day. And really, it's the type of man that's viewed as being tremendously unimportant uh, in our culture today as well. We're going to look at Jesus encountering a, a physically disabled man, a paralytic. And uh, if you or somebody you love uh, is physically disabled, you know kind of the, the, the general cultural response that you, you know, typically are going to get um, to you or that loved one is kind of uh, mocking, marginalization, uh, ignoring, avoiding at all costs. And I mean, that's the way it was back then as well to a man like this. And what we're going to see Jesus do is something tremendously counter-cultural. He is going to look at this man who is typically mocked and marginalized, and he is going to pursue love, accept and uh, change him. It's going to be an awesome story. So excited to look at this. Now, um, here's kind of my disclaimer before we uh, look at this uh, particular story. If you're really going to get kind of anything out of this, if this is really going to be helpful for you, I need to kind of warn you about something that you probably have a propensity to do. And here's what it is, um, is that you and I kind of, no matter whenever, no matter when we're kind of encountering a story, it could be a, a story in the Bible, it could be a story in a book, it could be a story in a movie. Uh, you and I, we have the propensity to kind of, you know, identify there's good guys, there's bad guys, and I am the good guy. And I'm not only the good guy, but I identify with the hero. And so uh, men, for example, if you know, if you saw the movie Gladiator, uh, you watched that, and you were just like, "Yep, I'm Maximus." You know, like that's just who I am. Uh, that's what I would look like if my shirt was off. That's what I would do if I was, you know, having to have a, a you know, a, a throwdown in a. In a <laughs> at a Roman uh, gladiator forum. And, uh, you know, we all watch these movies like, yeah, I'm, I'm Maximus. None of you watched those movies or that movie and you were like, you know who I really identify with? I really resonate with the creepy emperor. Like, that's exactly who I resonate with. I really resonate with uh, the extra in the opening scene who got slaughtered uh, like five seconds in the movie. Like, that's the guy I really resonate with, right? I mean, nobody says that. We all kind of resonate with the hero. You ladies, you know, maybe when you watch a uh, romantic comedy that's portraying somebody who's, you know, struggling to find love and hasn't been able to find love. I mean, you probably identify with like the cute, underappreciated, um, you know, down on her luck, one day is going to find love and find true love's kiss. You probably identify with that character. You're probably not identifying with a character who's, you know, she's uh, got frizzy hair and she's super annoying and she's super manipulative and she's the ex-girlfriend who's trying to break up this incredible great thing that's trying to happen in the heroes. Like, you're probably not like, you know what, I totally identify with that. Like, with that. You know, that's who I am. That's who I read myself into as I watch this movie. No, so like anytime we, we watch any sort of story or read any book, there's bad guys, there's good guys, there's a hero, and we always tend to identify with the hero. And, and, and we tend to do the same thing as we're reading the Bible. We tend to, you know, look at a story like this where Jesus is the only one who really loves a marginalized man and be like, yeah, and that's who I would be. I would be Jesus in this story, not ignoring him, loving him, showing compassion. And um, I mean, maybe that's the case. But here's what's so important for you to understand. Uh, if tonight is going to be helpful for you whatsoever, is that before you kind of see uh, uh, this story as an example of what you're supposed to do, uh, you need to see this more as a proclamation of what Jesus has done for you. 
Okay, I'm going to say it again because it's that important. Before you see this, it's kind of an example of what you're supposed to go and do. Like, okay, um, you know, what Jesus is calling you to do is go and care for the marginalized and the outcasts of culture, which I absolutely believe you're called to do, and I believe the follower of Jesus does. But before you jump right there and see this as a story of what you're supposed to do, you need to see this as a proclamation of what Jesus has done for you. Now, that's going to be difficult because, you're, you know, maybe you're not physically disabled and maybe you're unbelievably physically fit and maybe you crossfit and maybe you eat healthy and you haven't eaten a brownie in a year. You haven't even th- thought about eating brownies and you're like, I don't resonate with people who do eat brownies. I don't resonate with physically disabled people. And I would just say this. Here, here's kind of what you're getting a glimpse into. You know, there's, a, there's a famous British author, his name's Samuel Johnson. He said, the true measure of a man is the way he treats somebody who can offer him nothing in return. Like, that's what we see with Jesus. Like, he's encountering a, a physically disabled man, and it's an unbelievably admirable encounter. But here's the thing is, like, that same principle applies to us approaching Jesus as well. Like, when it comes to meeting Jesus, when it comes to encountering him and meeting him, we looked at last week, we are meeting God. And you need to understand that just like the physically disabled man in this story, we have nothing good to offer Jesus in return as we approach him and meet him. He is not like the needy buddy who like has to have half of your sandwich because he's hungry. He's, he's God. He is all-powerful, and he is sovereign, and he is self-sufficient, and he spoke, and the universe was created. Like, there's not a whole lot you can offer somebody like that, but what you're going to see is what it's like, just like a physically disabled man, just like a man like me, just like a, man, a woman like you. I mean, what it's like to see the true measure of who Jesus is. The true measure of a man is how he approaches a man like me and a man who's physically disabled who can offer him nothing good in return. And you're going to see the true love and character and nature of the way he approaches people like us. And so what I hope you see is that this person's story is our story. And before you kind of see this as something you're supposed to go and do, I I think it is something you're supposed to go and do. It's first and foremost a proclamation of what Jesus has done for you. Now here's here's kind of how we're going to walk through uh, this story. Um, we're going to see it through the eyes of, this, of this, uh, this paralytic. And what we're going to do is kind of ask the same three questions of ourselves that I'm sure that he was asking of himself as he was kind of walking through this encounter with Jesus. Okay, So we're going to, we're going to walk through this story. We're going to walk through it verse by verse because it's just such a compelling story uh, to look at. And um, let, me, let me just do this. Let me set the scene. Here, here's kind of what's going on. Is um, Last week we saw Jesus perform a miracle, and he was in a region. It's the same region he's in here called Capernaum. Uh, you could still go to Capernaum today and see its ruins. It's a real place in real history. In fact, Justin Almas on our staff uh, was saying that he went there a couple years ago and saw it. And it's this uh, tremendously tiny community where he was doing ministry. It was about 600,000 uh, square feet, which, you know, is that big or is that small? Um, kind of for perspective, that's about a third of the size of Sports Authority Field uh, where the Broncos play. So we're not talking like a major metropolitan area. We're not talking a major city. I mean, we're not even talking like a town, really. We're talking like a neighborhood. Like Jesus is in this neighborhood and he is doing ministry. And look at, look at what happens. Verse 17, as he's in Capernaum, on one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to 
heal. Now, look at this, because what's happening, what we're seeing is Jesus is in this very small community, and uh, all kind of the major influential guys in the major influential cities are flocking to him. They're coming from Jerusalem to Capernaum. Now, usually, it kind of works the other way around, right? We're kind of used to life uh, working where people go from the small towns uh, to the big cities. So some of you are from Kansas, some of you from Wyoming, and you flocked to the city. It didn't kind of work the other way around. You know, if you grew up in kind of the middle of nowhere, Kansas, you probably haven't met somebody from Denver who's like, I just had to come here and see your town because you guys have a Applebee's. Like, we don't have one of those. (laughs) We don't have one of those where we come from. You know, you don't. You don't, you don't get that. People tend to go from the small communities to the cities, but Jesus, like what Luke is showing us, is Jesus is gaining such prominence and influence that the people from the cities are actually flocking to the small communities. And what he does is he points our attention, look at verse 18, to a particular group of men who are flocking to Jesus. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. So, you kind of get the picture. There's this paralyzed guy. I mean, he can't walk, obviously, so they're carrying, his buddies are basically carrying him uh, to Jesus to get to Jesus, but he can't get to Jesus. There's so many people around Jesus in the small community, they can't get to him. So look at verse 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, as if this wasn't kind of crazy enough, I actually want to show you there's another kind of perspective or account of this in the Gospel of Mark. I might have it up on the screen here. Can we bring that up? Because it kind of gives us a little bit more detail of kind of what they go to do. So, you know, they approach Jesus. It's totally crowded. They can't get to him. So they actually go up on the roof. And look what they do when they get up on the roof. It says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let him down the bed. They let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So, can you, can you imagine the scene? These buddies—they grab this paralyzed guy. They get to the house. It's too crowded. They go up on the roof. They obviously can't get through the roof, so they start cutting a hole in the roof. And we're not talking a small hole that you can kind of just like ninja crawl through. I mean, this guy's paralyzed, right? We're talking a whole bed getting laid down through the roof. And so, let's just—you know—maybe you're in your city group uh, next week. And um, you're sitting there. I just want you to imagine what it would be like as you're sitting in a circle. All of a sudden, you hear footsteps on the roof. And you're like, Santa? Like, is that you? Like, who is it? And then all of a sudden, you start seeing this, like, major construction project taking place. And there's, like, a saw going in and out of the roof all the way, making this giant hole, sawdust, and and everything is falling all around you. And all of a sudden, this dude just gets lowered in on a pulley system and is like, hey, what's up? Like, I thought I'd show up for Citigroup. Like, that's what's happening here. Guys just getting lowered in. Hey, Jesus. And uh, that's kind of what leads to the scene. Now, we said we kind of want to ask three questions of ourselves. Here's the first question. What Luke is doing is he's going to painstaking effort and detail to help us see the lengths to which these men would go to get to Jesus. And here's kind of the first question I think we need to ask ourselves, is what is it that you're willing to do to get to Jesus? It seems like a kind of like an obvious question, or, um, but, but what is it, as we're kind of con- confronted with this example of these men who will do whatever it takes to get to Jesus, what is it that you are willing to get to Jesus? Now, here's the interesting thing, is that for you and I, we are kind of, our lives, we are characterized in our culture by going to tremendous lengths. Um, We'll kind of do whatever it takes to get something or to get to someone when they are truly precious uh, in our eyes. And so in the fall, when, you know, Apple probably releases the iPhone 6, um, you know, you're, you're talking about crazy lines 
at the Cherry Creek Mall because people have to get their hands on that great technological uh, advancement that will be um, useless six months later. Um, or, you know, I heard that there's a Chick-fil-A that's opening up on the Colorado and Colfax uh, intersection. And I heard at that uh, Chick-fil-A, when, in, when any Chick-fil-A opens up, the first 100 people in the store get free Chick-fil-A for a year. And so you can just imagine, like, what this is going to be like. In the craziest, busiest, like, worst place in all of our city for people to camp out for Chick-fil-A sandwiches, like, it is going to be crazy there. It is going to be absolutely crazy, and people are going to be camping out because of Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Or, you know, if you want to see a band or a concert, and it's at Red Rocks, and you know it's going to, you know, sell out quickly, uh, chances are you are going to architect your entire day, let's be honest, architect your entire work day so that you can get tickets to that show. And so tickets go on sale at 10, you will be in front of your computer at 9.45, I have a lot of work to do, Uh, look really busy, and I will just click the refresh button over and over and over and over again because I don't want those tickets to go on sale. And so when something is truly precious to us, uh, whether it's an iPhone, whether it's a uh, uh, spicy chicken sandwich with Monterey Jack Jack cheese, I'm getting so excited I can't even talk about it, Um, whether it's whether it's a band, uh, whatever it might be, we will do whatever it takes. We will sacrifice whatever it takes. We will structure our lives to do whatever it takes to get close to it because it's precious to us and it matters to us and it carries that weight of significance in our lives. And what what Luke is showing us, what he's confronting us with is an example of some men who so prioritize, who so recognize the significance of Jesus, they would do whatever it takes, whatever it takes to get to him. I'll tell you, we're going to see the way Jesus responds, but here's what's deeply convicting and challenging me. I hope it's convicting and challenging to you as well. um, I love this city so much. And I think one of the major reasons I love this city so much is because it's it's a magnet um, for tremendously driven, passionate uh, individuals who really will do whatever it takes to kind of get that thing that they want. And so it might be a certain physical appearance. It might be some sort of physical accomplishment. It might be a job. It might be a certain uh, lifestyle. I'm not sure exactly what it is, but, but people are characterized in the city by, by being kind of fanatical. Like, be honest, like some of you in this room are just complete psychopaths for whatever your passion or hobby is. And I love it because like, I don't think I could resonate with any other group of people whatsoever. I'm the exact same way. But I think the question that you have to ask yourself as you look at the way you spend your money and your time and your gifts and your abilities, as you think about the way you pour out your life, it's like, what are you willing to do to get to and make much of Jesus? Like, I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to come with like the sneaky ninja Jesus juke here to be like, well, why don't you love Jesus as much as the Avid brothers? Like, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to come at you with in that. But I think it, it does require a deep examination in the midst of our fanaticism and in the midst of our passions and the midst of our pursuits and the way that we pour out our time and our money and our energy and our careers. Like, what ultimately do we proclaim to the world is of chief significance? What is it that matters the most to you? What is it that you're willing to do to get to Jesus? And look, I understand that some of you, some of you in this room, like you, you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian. And so I know what's kind of going through your head now. Like I'm not a Christian. So obviously I don't put those things towards Christianity or towards Jesus. So I'm kind of exempt from this. Like what's the big deal? Well, let, me, let me tell you what the big deal is. 
is that when you begin to really examine your life and the way you really do demonstrate that fanaticism, I think what you can probably recognize, even if you don't consider yourself a Christian, I mean, we talk this way in culture, is, is that these things in our lives that direct our lives are more than mere hobbies. They're, more, they're, they're really a demonstration of worship. Like we talk this way, don't we? I mean, you don't have to be a Christian to talk this way, to be like, uh, I worship the Denver Broncos and Peyton Manning is my idol. Like we talk, like turn, on, turn to sports talk radio and you'll hear countless men talking that exact same way. And the reason this matters so much is that we believe, I mean, I, I think you could recognize this as well, is only one person in the universe can carry the weight of your worship. Everything else is insufficient. Everything else will crumble underneath the weight of your ultimate affection and time and devotion. Everything else will crumble underneath the weight of your worship. And that's why significant others have disappointed you. That's why uh, bands have disappointed you. That's why sports teams have disappointed you again and again and again and again. It has rocked you so deeply. Because there's only one person in the universe who can carry the weight of your worship. And I think these men are starting to understand this and recognize this. And because of it, they appropriate their devotion and worship to him. They'll do whatever it takes to get to him. And so I would ask you that same question. Do you recognize who he is to the point that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get to him? What are you, what are you willing to do to get to him? That's our first question. Now, our second question is going to be this. Is, is that as, <clears throat> as you approach Jesus, as you get to Jesus... Like, what is it that you ultimately hope that you'll do, or he'll do? So you, you get to him, like, what is it that you're hoping he'll do when you actually get uh, to him? And, and look then how Jesus responds as these people get to him. Look at verse 20. It says, and when, he saw, and when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Now, think a little bit critically about this scene, okay? Think critically about this scene. Um, you know, I have, I have two chocolate labs, and so, like, sometimes if you do something kind of peculiar, they'll give you this kind of, like, cockeyed, like, huh? Like, uh, look, I don't know if you have dogs, and they do the exact same thing. Like, that's the way I imagine these men looked at Jesus when he said this. Because think about this scene. Think critically about this scene. Like, they've tried to get to Jesus, but why are they trying to get to Jesus? Well, because, like, their friend can't walk. Because this dude can't walk, and all of a sudden, they get to Jesus, they lower him down. Jesus looks at this man who's physically disabled and says, your sins are forgiven. Can't you imagine them being a little bit frustrated, a little bit disappointed, a little bit confused, and being like, wait, like, that's, not, that's not what I asked for. Like, I asked to be able to walk, and you said that my sins are forgiven. Like, there's this one thing they want the most, and Jesus isn't willing to give it to them. And why do you think that is? Why do you think that Jesus looks at a man that he absolutely knows, okay, like, obviously the thing you want to do is walk, and here's what I'm going to say to you, your sins are forgiven. Well, I think here's what you're seeing is that Jesus Christ is so committed to this man's joy. He's not just so committed to this man's joy, but he's so committed to your joy and my joy as well, that he is willing to not give us what we most want, sometimes in favor of giving that which we most need. You see that going on? Like, he's looking at this man, and he's saying, okay, the thing that I want the most is to be able to walk. And Jesus, seeing the condition of his heart, is saying, no, that's maybe what you want the most, but what you need the most is not physical healing, it's spiritual healing. It's the forgiveness of your sins against God. It's your reconciliation back to God. And here is Jesus not giving this man what he most wants in favor of giving this man what he most needs. And I'll tell you, I take tremendous comfort and assurance of this because you're seeing Jesus more radically committed to this man's well-being and joy than even this man. 
Isn't that incredible? Jesus, he's more committed to your joy. He's more committed to your happiness. He's more committed to your well-being than even you are. It's unbelievably amazing. You know, here's what's amazing about this is, you know, all of us in this room have done enough life, I would say. All of the adults in the room have done enough life to come to the place where we can look back on ourselves, maybe in our teenage years, maybe in our early 20s, to remember a time where it was like, okay, well, here was this one thing that I wanted the most. And I told myself, if I could just get this one thing, if I could just you know, have this significant other, if I could just have this job title, if I could just have this amount of money in my bank account, then everything would be okay. And for a lot of you, that didn't happen. And it hasn't happened. And you can even look back on that experience and say, like, like, thank God, like, you were protecting me and taking care of me. Like, the best thing that happened to me is I didn't end up with that guy. God, you were taking care of me when I didn't even want to take care of myself. So many of you have experienced this. But you know what some of the others of you have experienced? This is even a little bit more frightening. You believed that there was this one thing, this one thing, that if I could just get, my life would be fulfilled and complete, and you got it. And life felt the exact same way. Like, I, I think that's a very terrifying moment to like, believe in your heart that if I could just get this, everything will be okay. And you get it, and it's not all okay. In fact, I was even reading, I was reading a, uh, another pastor kind of talking about this concept this week. And he's in a, in a major um, metropolitan area like ours, even larger. And it's one of those areas that attracts a lot of people who are aspiring to be uh, artists and um, celebrities and musicians, you know, and everybody's, you know, dropping out of college to move there in order to make it. And they're waiting tables and trying to make ends meet. And they're all telling themselves like, you know, when I make it, when I get a sitcom, when I become a celebrity, everything will be perfect. And here was, here was kind of his observation from working with these kinds of people. It was really interesting. He said this, he said, I pity celebrities. No, I do. He said, celebrities were once perfectly pleasant human beings, uh, but now their wrath is awful. More than any of us, they wanted fame. They worked, they pushed, and the morning after, each of them became famous. They wanted to take an overdose because of the giant thing they were striving for, that fame thing that was going to make everything okay, that was going to make their lives bearable, that was going to provide them with personal fulfillment and happiness. It happened, and nothing changed. They were still them. The disillusionment turned them toward howling, uh, turned them howling and insufferable. What he's saying is there's these moments in our lives where really what's most frightening is not when we lack something, but when we get exactly what we thought we always needed and we're still left wanting. And I'll tell you, I mean, again, I think this is so applicable to us in, in Denver because, you know, for a lot of us, we chose to move to the city. There's a certain lifestyle that attracted us to the city. And it was more than just kind of the fun lifestyle that attracted us here. But it was, I mean, it was something deeper, wasn't it? It, it was kind of the hope of redemption and happiness and satisfaction. And finally, I'll be able to enjoy the life that I always wanted to, to enjoy. And I'm going to meet somebody and it's young and it, it's fun. And I get to go into the mountains and there's all these pro sports teams. And like, I will be so unbelievably happy. And yet, some of you have made that choice or you know people who have made that choice and they've been here for several years and all of a sudden, this city isn't that much fun anymore, and it's not that cool anymore, and now I'm going to move to Seattle or Austin or San Francisco and give this thing a, a try again. <laughs> like, why is that? Well, because, I mean, like, what Jesus is proclaiming here is, is very much true. 
I mean, I don't think you even have to be, again, I don't think you have to necessarily even believe what I believe to identify with this. But like as fun as the mountains are, as beautiful as the mountains are, as cool as the microbreweries in the Rhino neighborhood are, and like as, as cool as those things are, like they're only going to mute the cries of your heart. They will never satisfy them. Like you really think a microbrewery is going to do that? You really think a certain lifestyle is going to do that? You really think like moving to a city where there's a bunch of young people is going to do that? Like, I it's awesome. Like I love it. I love living in this neighborhood and owning a home in this neighborhood. But it's, it's not going to ultimately satisfy the deepest cries of the heart. It'll, it'll merely mute them for a temporary period of time and they will grow louder and louder and louder and you will eventually have to do something with that voice. And what I would encourage you with is one, it's not too late, but also, here's what I believe. Even, even by the very nature of you being in this room, you know, for those of you who are here, like you just think about all the kind of miraculous workings and things that had to happen and the pain and the heartbreak and everything that led to you being and sitting in this room right now listening to me. And I would say what you see is that Jesus Christ, our risen Lord and Savior, has been working and laboring for your joy even more than you have. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he cares for you. That's, he has been fighting for your joy. And in moments, not giving you what you want in favor of you, him drawing you to himself to give you exactly what you need. Him, his work, his forgiveness, his salvation, the work of the gospel on the cross, on our behalf, to deal with our greatest problem. So that's why Jesus, he can look at a physically disabled man and say, like, your greatest need is not your ability to walk. It's, it's your forgiveness of sins and, and your spiritual sickness inside you. And he gives this man exactly what he needs, even though he wasn't asking for it. Take tremendous comfort. Not just my own life, but for those of you I care so much about. So we've asked, um, you know, what are you going to do to get to him? What do you, you know, when you, when, when you get to him, are you going to kind of let him do his work? Are you going to let him go as deep in your life as he wants? And now here's the third thing I would ask you is that after he does all this, so you get to him and he does this work, um, third and finally I would ask you, how, how will I respond to Jesus? Like, how am I going to respond to the work that he does uh, in my life? So if you look at this, this garners like a very significant, this work garners a very significant uh, response from all the people who witness it. And it should garner a significant response from us as well. And look at what happens. Verse 21, it says, And the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees were, were kind of the, the religious head honchos of the day. They were the, the religious authorities. It said, They began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, here's, I, I try to wrestle all week. What is the best way to work through this? This is like a. Basically, what happens is Jesus enters into a debate, and a debate is, you know, kind of like if you've ever been in one or taken a class on uh, critical thinking and argumentation, you know, it's very kind of complex. And so I'm just going to kind of like walk you through the reasoning of this debate to help you kind of understand why this demands such an extreme response from us, okay? So there's kind of like four different things that happen in this kind of back and forth between Jesus and the Pharisees, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to walk you through these um, so you can kind of understand what is it exactly that the Pharisees are after and how is it that Jesus is responding. So here's kind of the line of reasoning. So they bring this question, who can forgive sins but God alone? Why is he speaking blasphemies? And here's what kind of they're saying. So like, 
point one of their kind of argument or debate against Jesus is significant claims warrant significant authority. So if you're going to make an outrageous claim, you have to have the authority to back it up. So just kind of to give you an example, I remember back in high school, um, there was this teacher, her name was Julie, and um, I assume she doesn't listen to this podcast anymore because I'm about to um, use her as an example. If so, that was crazy and I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> but um, I remember she, she was a little bit, kind of weird, and um, she one day kind of got so fed up, she, she just had a lot of things she was very passionate about, and one of the things she was very passionate about, I didn't go to a Christian conservative school whatsoever, but she was like really passionate about the girls dressing modestly uh, at our school, and like she would just get very upset when she felt like the girls weren't, and uh, one day she snapped, and uh, what happened was we showed up for class, and she had this giant box of Hanes t-shirts, but it wasn't just Hanes t-shirts, they were like extra, 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 extra large. We're talking like, you know, nighttime t-shirts going down to your ankles. And basically, uh, she just started pointing fingers at the different girls around the class and was like, you're not dressed right, you're not dressed right, put on a t-shirt. And uh, they started putting on the t-shirt. And finally, like one of the girls was just like, I'm not going to do that. She's like, well, if you don't do that, you don't put on the t-shirt, I'm going to suspend you. She's like, well, fine, suspend me. And she says, fine, well, you're suspended. And she said back to her, wait, do you have the authority to suspend me? And she's like, no, I don't. <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of like what happened in that moment. You know, somebody makes an outrageous claim, like, you're going to be suspended from school. Everybody in the room is kind of thinking to themselves, wait, like, do you have the authority to do that? That's what the Pharisees are doing. They're like, well, wait a second. You said you just forgave this man's sins. Do you have the authority to do that? Now, that, that kind of leads us to the point two in this argument. The reason they're saying this is because forgiveness of sins was the most significant claim. It was kind of the most significant claim somebody can make. Now, I understand, again, like, that doesn't seem like it's that big of a, of a deal, but, but kind of r- try to wrap your, your mind about this. So Jesus, he's saying to a complete stranger, you know, by saying this, uh, I've seen uh, everything you've done wrong. So I have exhaustive knowledge over your life. I have absolute authority over your interactions with other people, and I'm going to forgive you of all wrongdoing. He, he's basically with this saying, you know, the only person who has that type of knowledge uh, is God, right? So um, even, let me just give you another example to help you wrap your mind around this. Let's say, um, you know, you and I are hanging out, and um, for some reason, we got into a heated dispute. Like, we got in a heated dispute about, like, what the best ice cream is in Denver. And um, you thought it was sweet action, and you're a fool. And I thought it was little man, and I was right. And uh, we just went back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it escalated and escalated and escalated and escalated and escalated. And you got so angry, you punched me right in the stomach. And I'm talking, like, knock the wind out of me. I'm wheezing on the ground. And um, it's like, wow, that escalated very quickly. Now, um, let's imagine that 30 minutes after all of this goes down, Andy, one of our pastors, just at the announcements, um, walks into the room, and he looks at you, and he says, I forgive you. I forgive you for what you've done against him. I'd be like, "Um, no, no, it doesn't, no, no. Um, You weren't here. You didn't see what happened. And um, it was against me. It wasn't against you. That. That's kind of the way that forgiveness of wrongdoing or sins works. And that's exactly what the Pharisees are saying. Like, wait a second, Jesus. So you're claiming to have exhaustive authority over everything this man has done. You're claiming to have been there when he wronged other people. You're claiming to have authority over his interactions with other people. Only God can say that. Only God can do that. It's a really outrageous claim that he's making. Now that leads us to kind of point three. What Jesus does is he backs up the claim. So he's like, okay, you're throwing, you know, you're throwing heat at me? Come on, let's go. And so here's what he says, verse 22. When Jesus perceived their thoughts. Now, 
Already, that should have been a dead giveaway. The debate should come to an end, right? So these guys, they're thinking to themselves, like, who's this guy I think he is, God? And he's like, why do you keep thinking I think I'm God, huh? You know, like, you can, they're like, whoa, you're reading minds. This should um, tip us off, but they don't give up. So Jesus answers them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So I'm going to prove the thing that you're questioning me about. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. So he understands kind of the claim to forgive sins is very subjective, right? I mean, it's kind of inward, it's spiritual. There's no sort of tangible evidence in order to back it up. And he says, fine, if you really want to see who I am, I will prove that I can work the inward miracle by performing an outward miracle. And I will proclaim to everyone, basically, I mean, what we're seeing is the legislator of the universe is breaking the laws of the universe to prove exactly who he is to everyone around him, that he is God and he has the ability not just to heal a man physically, but he has the ability to forgive sins and to restore a man's soul back to God. Look at the way people respond. This is kind of brings us to the fourth part of the debate. That significant claims backed up by significant authority, demand a response. So you see this? Jesus made a significant claim. He has backed it up by significant authority, and it demands a response, a radical response. If you look at verse 26 at the very end of this, it says, An amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. If you remember last week, we said that Luke has written this book so that you would meet Jesus. And what you see in a story like this is that when you really meet Jesus, what, what, what is provoked inside of you is one of two very radical responses. I know, I mean, we talked about this last week, but I have to say it again, that in the United States, the most popular understanding of who Jesus is is he's nothing more than a good moral teacher that you have sort of ambivalent, fuzzy, feel-good feelings about, and you're kind of lukewarm about. The problem is nobody met Jesus in the Bible and felt that. Nobody met Jesus. Look at this story. Look at the way people responded. They responded one of two ways. The Pharisees heard his claims. You know what they ultimately did? They conspired to kill him and they murdered him on a cross. The ragtag, jacked up, outcast witnessed this and they left glorifying and worshiping God. Stories like this are presented You are meant to meet Jesus for the purpose of being pushed in one of two very different directions. When somebody makes very radical claims like, I am God and the only one who can forgive sins, when somebody backs it up by performing a miracle that's historically reliable to say that I have the authority to do this, I am God, you cannot have a lukewarm, fuzzy, neutral response. You have one of two reactions, just like you see in this text. Either you call him liar and lunatic and you conspire to have nothing to do with him or you bend your knee and you worship him as Lord and say, command me. That's what you're seeing. Luke writes a story to move you in one of two directions. And I would just ask you, how are you going to respond? What, which of these two directions are you going to move? Will you side with the Pharisees who ultimately conspire to reject him? Will you side with the outcasts who worship and obey him. We're going to give you the opportunity to respond and kind of 
answer that question for yourself as we pray and take communion and as we um, sing and we celebrate. But what I hope you understand is um, that ultimately, I mean, that, that might be the most important question you ever ask yourself. And so even as we pray, and even as I pray, here's, here's, I'm just going to even give you a minute of silence because nowhere else in culture will give you a minute of silence. And I'm just going to let you maybe try to answer that question for yourself. As you look at a story like this and you see the significant claims, you see the significant authority, like who is it, how is it that you're going to respond to Jesus? Who is it that you're going to side with? And then how is that going to practically impact and shape your life, your relationships, your work, your money, even the next five minutes in terms of how you take communion? So let's pray. How are you going to respond to Jesus? I'm going to give you some time just to think about that. I'll close this in prayer and then we'll take communion. God, please just bless this time of uh, just introspection of our people. God, I pray that um, as we're confronted with an example of uh, just a group of men who are willing to do whatever it takes to get close to you, that we would be characterized by that level of devotion and worship. And I pray that as we get close to you, that you would do the change in us that we so desperately need. You sometimes cut far deeper than we ever believe we need to be cut. Sometimes you don't give us exactly what we believe it is that we need and deserve but we rest in a story like this to see the Christ of history who is so devoted to the joy of those he loves that he will give us exactly what we need even when we don't ask for it or pursue it. So God, I pray that um, that type of grace would provoke within us a radical response and, um, and that we would not side with those who condemn you and mock you and criticize you um, and ignore you and marginalize you. Uh, but we would side with those um, who proclaimed we have seen extraordinary things today and glorified you as a consequence. Let our response now be reflective of that. And uh, we thank you for this time. Amen.